The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Strongly that this endeavor has the capability to, to have a massive impact on humanity on planet Earth and beyond. And so my head is down getting the technology done, getting that technology into the market so we can start to get a little bit of a flywheel momentum effect and then start to apply this in all the places we know it can be applied. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 8, regular listeners, welcome back. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules, your busy day, your busy life to keep listening to the show. I've been getting so many good comments and feedback from people who are listening, who have been listening from episode one, for people who have just discovered it recently, keep coming back, giving me feedback on the guests. And that's always nice for me to hear. If this is your first time listening, I am sure you're in the right place. If you are queuing up a show called the Vertical Farming Podcast, it's likely that you want some information or looking for some guidance around something vertical farming, indoor farming, CEA related, and you are in the right place because this is the one where I interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. I've been podcasting since 2014 with my first show, Podcast Junkies. In case you missed Last week's episode, it was round two with Alexander Olison of Babylon Microfarms. So exciting to see the progress that the team is making, the recent round of investment that they secured. I even saw some photos of Alexander with Vice President Kamala Harris. So lots of visibility, which is always good news for our industry, vertical farming, CEA, and so great to see the progress that they're making. It's always fun to see the vertical farm that's set up just outside the indoor AgCon registration area, which they've been securing the past two years, probably before then, because I've only attended two, and I'll probably see them again in 2024 in Las Vegas. So if you haven't checked that out, please do so. It was episode 100. So I'm still on that high riding that 100 episode high. And congrats to my entire team, all the past guests, everyone that's had any part in making this happen and getting us to this three year 100 episode mark. I'm so excited and so grateful for all of you. This week, we have a high vibe conversation that I queued up and previewed last episode. It's with Samuel Bertrand. He's the CEO and co-founder of 1.1 and Willow. And we go on an inspiring podcast journey. He shares his vision for revolutionizing the way we grow and consume food through vertical farming. He has a passion to solve the world's poor nutrition problems. And their innovative approach includes some patented vertical farming tech called Apollo and their direct-to-consumer marketing and sales business known as Willow. We'll hear about the challenges he faced in creating these companies, the significance of healthy competition, and their ultimate goal of promoting human and environmental well-being. Get ready to be inspired by Samuel's unwavering dedication to making a lasting impact on this world, and it's something that you'll hear as a consistent thread through our conversation, and definitely through the vibe and the energy of his enthusiasm. I can't wait to share this with you. 
If you've enjoyed past episodes, if you end up enjoying this episode, please, you know what the call is. If you're a regular listener, leave a rating and a review. Is there any reason you haven't already? Have you been thinking about it and you just haven't had the time to? Well, this is not something you'll hear a podcast host do often, but you can actually pause this now. Head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. And you know what'll happen? I'll read yours out on the next episode and you'll become world famous. How cool is that? Please do so. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. These episodes are always chock full of great takeaways. And as a listener, I want you to focus all your energy on this conversation. You don't have to have a pen handy or take notes as you listen to things. Rest assured, you'll always be able to visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com and read the full show notes for each episode, which includes all the guest links as well. As of this recording, I'm getting ready for my trip to Indoor Ag Tech NYC, which you'll hear about shortly. And I can't wait to engage with past guests, new guests, potential guests, fans of vertical farming. These indoor farming conferences are becoming a really high point in my year. I've got a couple more lined up, so I can't wait to connect with you. If that's going to happen, I'm excited. All right, enough of that. Before we get into this conversation with Samuel, here are a few words from the amazing folks that support this show. This year, Indoor Ag Tech is coming to New York City's Times Square, and it's bringing together the world's leading growers, retailers, tech providers, seed companies, and investors. Join us from June 29th to June 30th to meet, expand networks, and produce fruitful partnerships. The team has been gracious enough to provide listeners of this show with an additional 10% off of the registration. Simply use promo code VFP when you register and lock that in. And by the way, if you're on the fence, remember that early bird discount ends on May 11th. After a pivotal year for CEA, the summit will explore what's needed to ensure the industry can continue innovating and growing into a crucial part of the global agri-food supply chain. I'm excited to introduce our latest sponsor, Ounce of Hope, an aquaponics cannabis company. Ounce of Hope utilizes aquaponics to cultivate cannabis and seafood livestock. They also perform their own extraction and product formulation in the heart of Memphis, Tennessee. While managing 5,000 gallons of koi and tilapia, Ounce of Hope's system allows for abundant production of fish poop nutrients, which you can now buy online. This product is concentrated plant food for any size garden. Fish poop is free of emulsions, bad smells, and won't burn your plants. Ounce of Hope is giving Vertical Farming Podcast listeners 50% off their first order. So swim on over to ounceofhope.com to experience the aquaponics side of cannabis and use promo code FISHPOOP. How fun is that? Mark your calendars for the CEA Summit East in Danville, Virginia from September 19th to the 20th, 2023. This two-day event, co-hosted by Indoor AgCon and the Virginia Tech IALR Controlled Environment Agriculture Innovation Center, brings businesses and academia together to help you grow your business. Immerse yourself in a full lineup of research showcases, panel discussions, and keynotes featuring top experts, grower operators, and other thought leaders. Explore the latest CEA innovations from tabletop exhibitors. Enjoy quality networking opportunities. Don't miss this unique opportunity to attend a conference at a research facility where you can get a first-hand look at cutting-edge research projects happening right now and explore ideas for collaboration with Virginia Tech and IALR researchers as well. Vertical Farming Podcast listeners can save 10% off the standard passes with code VFP. Visit ceasummit.com for more details and to register. Okay, Samuel Bertram, CEO and co-founder at 1.1 and Willow. Thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Pleasure is all mine. I love hearing where people are at and all the cool little gadgets that they've got to podcast with. And I love giving folks a little peek behind the scenes. I do have plans to eventually make this video and go on YouTube, but that's not happening just yet. So for right now, listeners will have to use theater of the mind. So if you could describe that, that no, little right. contraption you created <laughs> to help with the sound baffling on your microphone. Oh, this little thing? Oh, bloody hell. So I went and found uh, so many echoes in rooms and rather than putting all the soundproofing stuff on the wall, which takes time, I bought this eccentric soundproof. I cut out some holes with a wire cutter at the base of the thing and then put a spit guard on the front. And then what do you know? I sound about seven out of 10. I'm really happy with that outcome. You got MacGyver in your blood? Is that something you've always been known to do? No, I mean, I don't think MacGyver was cheap, was he? <laughs> me. I don't think he was cheap. Yeah. But you do have an engineering background. I do, and certainly not by nature. I went through high school and did business topics, maybe some science topics. I didn't do math for four or five years. I discovered the concept of nano, not discovered, but I came upon the concept of nanotechnology and just thought it was so insanely cool. 
So I went and, and well, I got a scholarship to Santa Clara University to play tennis there and walked into the engineering school in the middle of summer and said, guys, I don't have any background in engineering, but I promise you I'm going to finish this degree in three years. I promise you. Wow. I'm like, all right, this dude seems crazy. We'll let him in. But uh, I got, I went into math, I went into calculus three, multivariable calculus after four years of not doing math. And uh, you can imagine a gladiator-like scenario where I'm being eaten by alligators. That was almost the uh, best description of how Math 3 went for me. That's interesting. I have the sense, since you went to college on a tennis scholarship, there's a bit of a competitive streak in you. I love it, dude. I love it. I think competition, it can breed bad things, but properly managed competition can bring out the best in you and the best in others. I love it in sports. I love it in the business marketplace. You know, in vertical farming, we're all in the ring competing to develop the best technology and the highest quality produce and who wins well the winner wins and ultimately the consumer wins so i think competition is a phenomenal thing how young were you when you started playing tennis oh my goodness uh, before i can remember i was mom tells me that i was three or four when i started hitting the ball up against the wall and wow. we had a little sports room in our house i mean obviously not, not well but our dad was a tennis coach a tennis fanatic and he was our coach for Basically, the whole time we were in Australia until the age of 18, we came over here to the US, my brother and I. So, yeah, since the sport, I played probably between the ages of 8 and 18, I probably didn't play sport on like 20 of those days. Sport was my <laughs> life. What was your reaction to King Richard? King Richard? I haven't seen it yet, mate. I haven't seen okay. it yet. But uh, just, I mean, this is the thing is that look at that rise. Look at yeah. the rise of those two from nothing to the best female tennis players in the world and the best tennis, female tennis player ever. I mean, I just love that stuff, man. You know, there again, the beauty of competition, they just, they sacrificed, their dad sacrificed so much, they sacrificed so much, and now they're reaping the reward. Love it. What's your relationship when you think of that combination or the dichotomy between, you know, sacrifice and lifestyle or quality of life? Do you think about those two and how do you manage that relationship? Well, first of all, my baseline for life is sort of a heap of gratitude, gratefulness. You know, my baseline is not the person living next door to me. My baseline is a man or a woman in the 1600s that hasn't had a shower in their entire life, that has no access to medicine. All of their surgeries have no antiseptic, no anesthesia. Like that's my baseline. So every day on planet Earth is an absolute freaking gift. Every sip of water coming out of a tap is magical. Obviously, being a little excessive, but you understand that's kind of my baseline so you know work-life balance according to who and according to which standard when yeah. you know my life is so phenomenally high quality so comfortable i don't you know what work-life balance like i get to go home to a warm bed with my daughter and, and a beautiful house i mean what the heck man I, like i don't i'm in here on the weekends by choice i'm not ever thinking oh i wish you know i had some more time to go out in a jet ski screw me <laughs> that i'll go out in a jet ski when i'm 50 and my brain doesn't work but now <laughs> There are a lot of people that, uh, and I'm no martyr, believe me, this is just the way I think and my brother thinks. We just have a very finite period of time where we can be very productive and we want to aim that productivity at making the world a better place in a meaningful way. So it's simple in the end. How do you think about guidance for your daughter in light of the experience you had growing up and in light of the reference we made to King Richard? Do you think about those things in terms of like how, you know, how much effort do you direct someone or you just let them find their own way? Sure. I mean, I spend, I, even with the business, I still spend hours with her every day. You know, I, that's something, you know, that's something I'm not willing to sacrifice to a, a significant extent, yeah, extent. So I'm still, of course, very involved with her. It's a complicated question, dude, because the outcome you desire is not necessarily the outcome she desires. The impacts you hope you will make along the way may or may not impact her in that way there are it's so complicated and there are so many unknowns that really and it's the same in business in my opinion you have to apply yourself the control you have is over yourself and the way that you apply yourself to the situation so with my daughter very attentive i speak in large words we play sport i'm not perfect i think adult humans have a, a habit of overthinking things sometimes and, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at the data, parents have a 10 to 20 percent impact on the outcome of the child. The rest is genetics and friends and experiences and all that kind of stuff. So, look, that's 10 to 20 percent. Yeah. I'm going to do what I can to make sure that she has the freedom to stretch her boundaries. And I encourage her to stretch her boundaries. But also I set those boundaries such that she isn't doing silly things and going down the wrong path. So, 
We'll see, dude. I don't know. I I had fantastic parents. I don't think I'll ever live up to that standard, but I'll do my best. Yeah, yeah. And how old did you say when you made it to the States? I was 18. What was your first reaction? First reaction. I was awake for 60 hours. I arrived in uh, Fresno, California, and uh, I was a couple of weeks late for the semester, and my teammates thought it was a good idea to start doing the uh, initiations and the hazings, oh, okay. the going to the uh, my first ever American football game. So that was an intriguing 60 hours, but many stories that I can't share on a podcast. Uh, it was a phenomenal 60 hours. What can I say? It's very similar to Australia, dude. You know, culturally, it's very similar. It's just a very similar place. There was no shock. I was an 18-year-old coming over here and getting rewarded to play tennis. I mean, what the heck? Yeah. I'm going to love every moment. I get the sense that on the West Coast, because I lived four years in LA myself, so the vibe there is a bit more relaxed and a bit more in line with like the friends that I have that are Australian and from other parts of the country, the UK as well. And just th- there's certain vibes, I think, where people learn how to take... Uh, and the fact that I grew up in New York also, so I, sometimes uh, when it comes to... Playing around with my, my friends, I do a thicker skin <laughs> as well. Yeah, but that's the it's a funny thing because I think Australians are like Californians with thicker skin. I think it's a very apt way of describing it because we, I mean, we just did a, Jonathan, my brother and I, co founder of the business, CTO, we just did a two or three hour due diligence call as before this. And uh, during the call, we're jabbing back and forth in each other. And I hope Americans don't think that we actually like have some deep seated problem with each other. I mean, we're smiling while we're saying this stuff, but. Yeah, it's, uh, the jousting is, unfortunately, you can't get away with much jousting in California. I'll tell you that much, right? Just shut my mouth pretty quick. Yeah, and especially in this environment we find ourselves in. <laughs> I think it's a, it's going to be a bit yeah, of a correction because the pendulum has swung a bit too far to the correctness side. So gotta watch what you say nowadays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially, I don't mean to say it this way, but especially in my me and my brother's position, we've got to be so bloody careful what we say publicly, even if, yeah. you know, we can get in a lot of trouble real quick, especially being Australian. So uh, yeah, this is me tightening my lips, by the way. It's not a good sign. <laughs> we'll record a special uh, version of this, the after hours version, once we're done with the, uh, the official. Oh, version. no. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just hand in my resignation as soon as we conclude. So 2017, you started the company, uh, which is relatively early in this space. So, you know, how did this get on your radar? And I know you were still, it looks like you were still in school as well. So talk about those early days. Yeah, uh, going through robotics school, my brother going through electrical engineering. We both knew dad was heavy into philosophy and he would, you know, rather than going summer vacations to the beach or, you know, a, a resort, we would go to our nation's capital, Canberra, and we would go to the art gallery and the museum and the science museum and parliament mm-hmm. and the library and all that kind of stuff. So bored out of our mind as we were as young children, I think that probably laid the correct seed. So, you know, we arriving at the end of our degrees, we were just saying, Click your fingers, you're going to be 80 years old and I've missed life. You know, this is what you keep hearing from 80 year olds, 100 year olds. We listen to a lot of these videos on YouTube. Those people implore us, focus on what matters and be very efficient with your time. Don't mm-hmm. waste your time. So those are two very clear messages. So hopefully we don't waste too much of our time and hopefully we are aiming our, uh, our fruits towards things that will improve humanity. So look, the, all we did was what's the greatest problem on planet Earth? GPT wasn't around, so we had to ask two or three times. The answer turned out to be poor nutrition, very clearly. Climate change is on that list, but it is not number one. Poor nutrition of humanity is the number one problem that faces humanity quite clearly. So we said, how can we possibly solve that problem? And we've got to take a big swing. The problem's got to be big, and the solution's got to be big. Big doesn't mean fast. There's a huge conflation between big and fast. Big and fast can exist in software. Big and fast cannot exist in hardware. Yeah. So big is important to us, fast is, is less important to us. So when poor nutrition came up as the biggest problem, we couldn't quite find that match on the traditional farming side, couldn't quite find that match on the greenhouse farming side. But then we came across vertical farming and it was clear. Automation needed to be solved. Energy efficiency needed to be solved. My background's robotics, even though I suck at it. And John's background is electrical engineering and he's bloody great at it. So we came together and we said, you know, and we knew nothing, dude. I mean, I'll, show you, I'll give you one example. We had an investment come in through the Stanford Investment Investors Club. And the guy calls me up and says, congratulations, we're going to invest 10 grand. I said, oh, that's fantastic. I've invested 10 grand in my life. And uh, I said, you know, who should we put the check to? And I said, just make it out to me. And they said, no, dude, that's not how this works. We can't write you a check. We're investing in the business. I said, just write 1.1. They said, well, are you a C Corp or an S Corp? I don't know, dude. And they go, are you incorporated? I said, what's incorporation? They said, do you have a bank account? I said, no. Oh, my God. So this is like, that's indicative 
But I'm always very honest about what we don't know. And I think ultimately yeah. that helped, even though it was very painful in the way. But anyway, yeah, it's, I think, I really, no, I don't think, I believe strongly that this endeavor has the capability to, to have a massive impact on humanity on planet Earth and beyond. And so my head is down getting the technology done, getting that technology into the market so we can start to get a little bit of a flywheel momentum effect and then start to apply this in all the places we know it can be applied. Where'd the name come from? We read a statistic that said 1.1 billion people started the millennium malnourished. And that, like, talk about smacking you in the face. My brother yeah. has an analogy, which is malnourishment was like this. You and your friends are in a pool playing a game where you see how long you can hold your breath. After about 45 seconds, you start to feel your body telling you, I need oxygen, I need oxygen, and then you come up for air. Malnourishment is like that, except you don't know where the bloody air is. So then you multiply that by three times the population of the United States, you're talking about a pretty big problem. And then that goes back to your previous question, which is about work-life balance. Do they have work-life balance? Who am I to say, oh, I really want to preserve my work-life balance while these people, you know, 26% of the world's world's children, population of children is malnourished. I'll say it again. 26% of the world's children are stunted, not just malnourished, stunted. Okay, I don't mind so much about my work-life balance now. Where did this uh, view of life, I mentioned you know, some of the influence of your father taking you to all these places that probably most kids <laughs> don't spend a lot of time in. So I'm curious, like how your worldview was created over time? Heavily influenced by my parents, certainly. It was this very early recognition of death and finiteness of life and the finality of death that was, oh my goodness, life is going to be over in a flash. And so I'm like, one day I'm going to be met with the news that I'm terminally ill or I'm just going to be outright killed by something. That is inevitable, as inevitable as something can be. Before then, I'd like to get something done. So, you know, the worldview was certainly, it was planted by my parents and then I went off and did all my dumb stuff in college and then towards the end of the college, I started to ask myself actual questions. And it was, you know, it was the, sort of the disenfranchisement of a couple of different ideals over time. I think it was like, you know what? The way I see the world is not correct. And I don't think there are many young people that should be tasked with, how do I say this? I don't think there should be many young people that should be tasked with setting the direction of the world from a philosophical perspective. I think philosophy requires experience. I think philosophy requires, therefore, wisdom. It's Even though the idealism of the young is good, it needs to be heavily tempered. And, and in my opinion, the adults in the room of which I'm barely a part of, should be discussing those things. Do you have a favorite philosopher? I know my brother does. I just don't read that much, dude. That's my problem. Yeah. I listen. I was about to say Alan Watts, but that's, a, that's obviously not oh, that's question. Question. I mean, I've read a lot of this. But Stoic is big. Yeah. Stoicism is big. You know, the meditations, all the offshoots of the meditations, even the Greeks before him, that stuff really resonates with me. You know, I think about the concept of being a man, which is not something we should discuss certainly in 2023 but the concept of being a man is in my opinion stoicism is everywhere within the fibers of being a man in my opinion patience strength even temperedness these kinds of things i think i naturally resonate with them and i think they're great ideals to aspire to yeah i've been off and on digging some of ryan holiday stuff even so much that i actually have this here on my desk it's my coin there you go the coin <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Temperance, wisdom, courage, and justice. So, yep. reminders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. And we all need a man. That's another thing I think we miss these days is guess what? Those things on the coin are the ideal. You are not them. In fact, you are very far, not you, but we yeah, are very you, far yeah. from those ideals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're projects, dude. I mean, I don't see myself as fine the way I am. I've got a long way to go before I'm happy with you know, who I am and what I've accomplished. You know what I mean? And that's okay. I'm not down on myself. It's so funny. You talked about this idea of uh, socialism and manhood. And, you know, most men of this era have never gone through any sort of experience. You know, for some cultures, sometimes it's like in the Jewish culture, it's bar mitzvah, but really nothing like we're thinking about indigenous cultures, like three days, go out, live on your own, come back. And then, you, you know, like a sweat lodge or something like that. And I think that's really missing this sort of like, initiation phase so i've been thinking that a lot i've actually signed up for a retreat i'm going to be headed to in washington it's three days no yeah it's, it's a men's retreat and it's, it's so funny because they're like prepare for like 
being outside and make sure you bring a mouth guard as well. So I'm saying, <laughs> okay, we're really, I don't think it's going to be too crazy, but I think they just want to protect people. But I think it's definitely going to push me out of my comfort zone because I'm a bit anxious about going. But just from the pictures I've seen yeah. and the experiences, transformations, no cameras allowed, stuff like that. So it'll be a nice way to kind of see if I can deepen my connection or opening my heart because it's something I'm very head-based. So uh, something that I want to focus yeah. on. Yeah, the another notion that I think is lost is this concept of service. I mean, again, mm. back to the man thing, females, of course, I'm not excluding them at all. It's just, man, I'm a little more familiar with being in service of your family, being in service of your community, being in service of your business and your mission. Life is about service. And I think many religions speak to that. But yeah, back to your previous point, which is very few men go through a rite of passage or a maturation phase. It almost has to be artificial. Sport, I think, does it very well. War does it unbelievably well. Outcomes aren't necessarily all that great for the individual after war. But yeah, it's a, I yearn for responsibility. I want responsibility. I want my actions to be responsible for the well-being of others. I want that. And I'm... And on the downside case, uh, it causes harm or doesn't provide value. But in the upside case where it does provide value, I think that's where I'm going to be most fulfilled. Who do you go to or who do you trust when it comes to seeing whether you're in alignment? Because when you look at it yourself, you may think that you're on the right path. But who provides those guardrails for you from the outside looking in? Brother, family, our CEO, who now, of course, we consider family, many inside of this business, I would consider family. I'm very open about that. You know, I ask them quite often, especially after specific you know, scenarios, how could I have been better? What did I do wrong? I wish I didn't do that. Yada. I have very little internal negative speak. Critical, not negative. Very, those two are very different things. So I'm not negative on myself really at all. I, none of those loops apply. So there's a lot more of the board game that is now available to me to be critical. So I think it's just so fundamentally important to your improvement as a human and your ability to be efficient as an operator to be able to look at yourself and see where you have flaws and deficiencies. And the people I go to, brother primarily, family beyond that, father, mother. I keep asking my four-year-old daughter for advice, but she just can't quite (laughs) articulate herself too well just yet. And our COO, Alon, and head of business development, Dushan and Ryan, you know, I've had some tough times over the last 18 months, went through a divorce, a few other things. And that group of people has been so fundamental to you know, getting through that period of time. You know, they're my rock upon which my emotional waves crash. There you mm, go. That's important to have that support system. Where's home for you? Scottsdale, Arizona, mate. Used to be Gilroy. Before that was San Jose. Fresno. Before that was Melbourne, Australia. Okay. And where's the headquarters for 1.1? Scottsdale, mate. Yep. Okay. And any was there a choice between deciding to be there? Yeah, look, the number one metric we were looking for as a business was what's the density of golf courses per cubic kilometer? I'm joking. Uh, no, we were in California for a while. As we yeah. kind of touched on jocularly before, California is not exactly an easy place to be right now for a lot of people. And it's also, uh, California is very low in acceptance. It's a funny thing mm. is that California always preaches, you know, acceptance, <laughs> inclusivity, all that kind of stuff. But if you don't think the way I think, get out. A fascinating thing. Uh, tough place to do business. So we moved over to Arizona. Probably, you know, we moved here about two years ago, a little over two years ago. Headquarters. In fact, I got an email today moving out of San Jose. Certainly sad. A lot of friends, a lot of memories out there. Yeah. But it was certainly the best trade for the business. And you know, we looked at electricity price, labor costs, real estate costs, access to consumables, distribution network, all that kind of stuff. And Arizona, Phoenix came out as you know number one or two, and. I didn't really want to live in Washington State. I'm not a cold, uh, I'm not a cold-blooded animal. That was a joke. So yeah, Scottsdale turned out to be perfect. Has there been any changes for you in terms of uh, culture-wise or shifts and <laughs> what you expected? Not really, man. I mean, I'm not hypersensitive to that stuff. I can just yeah. sort of, I can you know drop myself in and. And uh, also, I don't have a huge amount of time to socialize, so it's not exactly like I've been spending time at bars and clubs and social clubs and stuff like that. So I don't even know. But no, I mean, it's, I love this place. It's a lot more accepting of different points of view yeah. than my previous locations. It's a lot more sort of live and let live kind of scenario. It's a very clean place. I enjoy the people very much. I've had very few people that I clash with from a values perspective over here. 
I don't know. You're always going to pull the positive stuff out of me, man. I don't know too many <laughs> negative things I'd say about stuff now. So let's talk about early days. What was the idea? Well, who was the customer base? What was the what did the product mix look like when you got started? Like, who are you intending to serve? Dude, I, I didn't even know if I needed to incorporate the business. So uh, I'll <laughs> skip a year. Let me just skip a year. Uh, no. So yeah, initially it was that it wasn't product market fit. And that was a mistake early. And I'm talking the first 12 months. It was like, we're working on tech. We're working on tech. Okay, draw the business model. And you're like, ah, oh, oh. that changed very quickly, obviously. But we brought the adults into the room. But, you know, early days, it was, we were going to go down the path of building our own facilities and selling produce into the market. And, you know, after a couple of years of, of that, and we were putting produce out into the market, we had the three-star Michelin chef. We had a lot of, you know, we had a direct-to-consumer business we were running back then. A lot of those learnings were vital, but it was actually, you know, thinking about the long-term viability of the business and looking at the failures of vertical farming. You know, we started to realize this model of building mega facilities on your own dime and producing a commodity product that you then distribute out into the market. It wasn't optimal for a variety of reasons. But a lot of what it came down to was how do we do the greatest good in the shortest period of time? If we're the ones that have to develop the market study for each of the individual markets, raise the project financing to build the facility, operate the facility and get product out to the market, who are we? They're all things. And I'm not smart enough to do all things. Uh, so we sat down and we said, you know, look, we're a technology company. But those were our fundamentals. We came into this thinking we can solve the big problems of this industry through technology. I still believe that to be the case. It'll take time. It'll take money. Uh, you know, we really just pinned down who we were and what we do. And that's how we arrived in this place where we've developed a proprietary solution. We have patent protection around the method of production, which is not something that many organizations can say. And we're integrating the best technologies off the shelf that we can possibly find. And our secret source is in that integration and the software that runs it and the data and the analysis of that data. That's our, that's kind of our business in a nutshell. Talk a little bit about, you know, given the fact that you're around since 2017, I'm wondering what the impact was and how you had to shift during the pandemic. It was actually more operational than anything else. When you think about COVID and as it pertains to vertical farming and headwinds and tailwinds, in many cases, there were more tailwinds than headwinds. Yeah. Operationally, there were headwinds, you know, farming and development, these things kind of, we had to have a lot more, many more restrictions and travel and so forth. So operationally, it was more difficult, but I think it sped e-commerce up. I think it sped up the consumer's understanding of produce production, plant production and further inform the preferences, sped up that informing of the customer on consumer preferences. So in general, I don't think for, as it relates to vertical farming, I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. The, where I thought your question was going was more down the path of you know, starting in 2017, we incorporated two weeks before Plenty announced their $200 million round from SoftBank <laughs> and you know huge claims and a lot of these claims are falling flat and we made a decision very early on to stay out of that whitewash, man. Just stay out of it. We, I'm not the kind of guy that wants to sort of hide in the shadows and not say much. I don't know how clear that is. I want to be the one out in the marketplace talking about this technology in this industry, and that's starting to occur now. Uh, we just, you know, there were so many massive claims and so few actual executions that we just stepped back and said, we just ain't going to say much for a long time. And unfortunately, that's assisted us now that there is whitewash, now that a lot of the vertical farming industry is in a difficult moment. I think that has assisted us. We've been different in that way. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of the environment, in terms of the folks in the space, we actually connected briefly at Indoor AgCon, courtesy of the team at Cultivated. So talk about your uh, thoughts on getting out there, being more visible and uh, meeting folks and networking within specifically within this indoor farming space. What's that experience been like for you? Our preference is to do and then say, in startup world, that's not always possible. And so a lot of startups came out and said before they did. And I'm not saying that we never did that. Like, of course, there were times where we were projecting about what we think we can do. So I don't mean to be laying blame on everyone but us. We're included to, to some extent, of course. But now that we have a demonstration, now that we have farm customers, now that we have, now that we have proof of things, it's a lot easier to go out and say, guys, you know, Great question. Go look at it in the actual thing operating as opposed to, you know, what it might be in the future. So it's mainly just been about proving out what we thought we could do and now going out to customers and saying, this is what we have. And if these are our operating costs and the build costs and all these kinds of things, you know, so 
that's the point we're at right now. We're starting crossing that chasm between we've got a technology, we've got early adopters, we need to get this out to the agnostic market. But that's right now, that's where we're at right now on the other side of that chasm as of very recently. But uh, yeah, that's, that's how I'd answer that one. Do you see that more then as a important part of your marketing to get out there, start to, to be the face of the company at more of these conferences? Many things. I think it is important to improve that sales funnel. I also, we've done a lot of thinking about this, and I think we've been quite sober throughout the years regarding how hard this is and, and how much time it will take. You know, continuing to get those messages out into the public, I think, is important. People are very hasty with vertical farming and impatient, partially because of the claims that were made many years ago, I'm sure. But it, yeah, it's partially marketing, but it's also you know, wanting to make this more mainstream, more of a conversational topic. I don't imagine we'll ever get to the point where it's, you know, we're chat GPT worldwide, number one thing searched on Google. But there are messages here, real messages here that I think the market or the wider audience need to hear and align with in a lot of cases. There are other projections or there are other contemplations that we'd like to test against the market and see what the experience of other vertical farmers and customers have been. So there are many different reasons why it's important for us to be out now in the market, but Fundamentally, we had to be ready to get into the market first. Makes a lot of sense. So for folks that may not be familiar with 1.1 and, and Willow, can you just, assuming folks are coming to this new and they want to understand who you're for, who you're not for, who's an ideal fit, can you give, talk a little bit about that? Sure. And well, great question. Well asked. So 1.1 is a technology company. 1.1 has developed an automated vertical farming solution. 1.1 has integrated many technologies under a patent-protected other where our customers, our farm buyers or partners come to us and say, I want a farm like that. They pay us a licensing fee. They pay to get the farm constructed. And there's a software program that runs the farm and integrates those other technologies like the automated seeding, automated harvest, automated packaging. So where that farming technology in the middle, that's the turnkey element. Then there are other elements like pre-processing, seeding, and then harvest storage, cleaning, waste management, stuff like that. All of that comes in as third-party integrations. So that's essentially the 1.1 business. And our goal is to license as many licenses as we possibly can on the hardware side. And, and that's the fastest way we believe to proliferate this technology is that in each of the circumstances, you have a buyer that knows their market, that knows their supply chain, that has access to project financing, and we can be that technology inside, which is absolutely our strike zone. So that's the 1.1 hardware and software solution. The farming technology is called Apollo with an O. So Apollo 2 is leafy green. Apollo 3 is strawberry. Apollo 4 is a medicinal plant that I'll hesitate to mention. And Apollo 5 is biopharmaceutical. So that's the lay of the land with 1.1. Willow is a wholly owned subsidiary of 1.1. Willow is a direct-to-consumer marketing and sales business where consumers can become members of the Willow Farm. The Willow Farm will then produce that produce and then ship it directly to the door of that consumer. When we are in the process of licensing hardware out to our different customers, our customers also have a lot of interest in licensing the Willow, the Willow business as well. So when someone builds a farm in Pennsylvania, they'll also license the rights to the Willow business and be able to do direct-to-consumer for those individuals who want to be really involved in their plant production process. That's what Willow is really for. What's the typical size of a Willow installation? A farm? Uh, it really depends. I mean, the installation, the farm is the Apollo system, the OPO 1.1 system. Yeah. The Willow is the interaction with the consumer. I mean, the average size of interest that we've been coming across is somewhere, around, let's just say half a million pounds of yield per year. The way that would translate into square footage is between 2,000 square feet, two and 3,000, excuse me, square feet for the installation. Depending on, as I said, depending on the output, that's somewhere between a five and a seven million dollar farm for that output. So that's the typical size. I think, you know, there are the Babylon microgreens of the world that are for the sort of in store or in home. And, and I think that this technology is, is a much more industrial use case. I think anywhere from a thousand to a hundred thousand square feet makes sense for this kind of technology. It's very scalable. It's based upon a globally renowned automation system. So it is modular and scalable. But yeah, that's where the system plays best. It's challenging enough to have a company that's solely focused in one area and to understand the intricacies and the, the challenges you're going to be facing going forward. But it seems like you're doing it with two because you've got 1.1, you got Willow. 
you feel like you have to switch hats sometimes when you have specific challenges that would help the growth of Willow that are different than the challenges you might have at 1.1? Certainly. Uh, this game is a question of the attribution of resources. How do we optimally use our resources? Human, money, all these kinds of things. So, yes, I mean, I do have to sometimes actually have to close my eyes and give my brain a second to switch hats between 1.1 and, and Willow for sure. Even within 1.1, even within Willow, I have to switch my hats for a second. I've got a slow bloody brain up here. But yes, it is somewhat a split of my time. I mean, my main focus, of course, is on 1.1 and on the technology. That's the part where we are focusing on growing the quickest. But we have set up, we've established a Willow business that is scalable as well. So most of my time for sure is on the 1.1 side. But I see such incredible prospects for Willow. You know, our ultimate goal is much greater than large facilities growing commodity products, right? Our goal is human health. Our goal is environmental health, much wider than that. We think, you know, we have to put one foot in front of the other, mate. Believe me, we have to get, you know, the first five facilities up this year, 100 facilities next year. Once that's up and running, we're hitting real volume. Then we can start to choose the willow side of the business more because health is going to become personalized. It's just flat out inevitable. When is the real question and how? So that's Willow is going to participate in the personalization of health, personalization of diet. Talk a little bit about that. What does that look like for you when you say personalization of health? There are 30,000 edible plants in the world. We have access to less than 300 of them. Human health is predominantly based on plant-based products. I'm not saying go vegan, but it is clear that the healthiest diet you can eat is predominantly plant-based. Not entirely, but predominantly. So understanding that, if we have the means of production on the plant side and we can integrate ourselves with these biometric sensors like the Apple Watch and the Aura Ring and these kinds of things, of course, we wouldn't integrate directly into their raw data, but certainly the information they can yield from that data. Right now, the best we can do is to take that biometrics feedback loop and feed it back into diet. What we want to do is take it a step further, feed it back into plant production. So if we understand on aggregate, what New York requires individually, but of course on aggregate, we can then change or adapt what production looks like in order to be able to fulfill the requirements of that population. If we can understand, because diets are very regional and Mm. every human needs something different to to operate at biological optimal. So in the future, I believe that we're going to dramatically expand the number of plant species that we grow for consumption, and we're also going to target those plants to ailments or biological deficiencies that can be rectified. That's where I think it's going. That's exciting. So since starting the company, where have you personally seen the most growth as a CEO and as a leader? Probably in the people. So many puns I can make. (laughs) But probably the people, mate. I mean, our technology has come a very long way, and it's very hard to see the forest through the trees in that respect. So the objective answer would probably be the technology. The subjective answer is myself and the other people around me. This is very hard. The technology is one thing. Getting that product into market is another thing. Being able to adapt to the global macros like the unavailability of cheap energy in Europe or the increase in the price of inputs. This has and the world turning on its head and capital drying up and vertical farms failing all over the place. Just to remain very nimble and steady-headed. Many of those uh, terms hopefully are on that coin. Uh, yeah, I would say I've seen myself grow a lot. I've seen the team members grow a lot and uh, has obviously benefited the company significantly. What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Am I doing this right is always a tough question. There are a lot of personal questions. I try and set some time out every half of the year to take a day and go through a couple of hard questions I have for myself. So. Many of them are personal. On a professional front, the question always becomes, am I doing the greatest good in the shortest period of time? Am I aiming this ship in the right direction? And the answer to that question may be a very hard answer. Right now, the answer still seems to be, in my opinion, quite clearly developing this technology and proliferating this technology. But that's probably the hardest corporate question we ask ourselves is, are we doing the right thing? Are we applying ourselves in the right place? But the personal questions are harder than the professional questions, for sure. <laughs> you mentioned uh, goal 100 markets. So are you looking to expand globally at this point? 
Well, it's 100 farms next year. So our major priority is to deploy the five farms that we recently sold here in Arizona. Then next year, we are hoping to, with the same customer, they're really a partner at this point, the same partner scale those through the East Coast in one or more locations on the East Coast of the United States. The United States is has ample opportunity for scaling. I don't think we're going to run out of market in the United States anytime soon. But yeah, so we're going to focus on the United States for now. And uh, have you been abroad? I was recently with a cultivated team in uh, Dubai. So I got a peek at obviously some of the challenges in some of those regions, and it seems like it's ripe for growth. But do you feel like maintaining that focus in the States is the best approach for where you're headed right now? For now, yes. I mean, as a business, the most important thing is that we execute on these first five farms in Arizona in 2023, period. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take any conversations anywhere else, of course, but that's fundamentally what we have to do as a business this year in order to be able to make the difference that we want to make. Now, in 2024, when we're out scaling that technology with our partner in the United States, we will rekindle many of these conversations or act upon many of these conversations and turn them into partnerships customer vendor partnerships, but the focus, you know, we're still out, believe me, mate, don't get me wrong, we're still out talking, that's why we. That's why I met you in the first place, we're still out talking to potential customers about where we can deploy these facilities, the focus of this business absolutely is on the number one problem in vertical farming, in, in my opinion, which is demonstrating production at scale. For me, that is clearly the number one problem. Unit economics weaves into that, electric consumption weaves into that, you know, production surety weaves into that. The number one problem, dude, is that no one has really successfully shown vertical farming production at scale hitting unit economics reliably. That's so hard. And that's yeah. the number one thing that we should all be focusing on. And the greenhouses do it so unbelievably well. Yeah. Uh, perfectly, but unbelievably well. We need to learn a couple more lessons from the greenhouse industry, I think, before we get to that scale. That's the number one problem, dude. Like whenever yeah. we have conversations with distributors, with retailers, farm customers, they're desperate for vertically farmed product. You know, there's all this discussion about unit economics and how large is the market and all this kind of stuff. Yes, good questions. The primary question is get this stuff to scale somehow. You know, yeah. start fulfilling a market need. How's your partnership with Cultivated been? Is it still early days or what's been? Relatively early days. No, we yeah. really like those guys. They've set up a great business. They have a big funnel that just demonstrates the interest in vertical farming technology and greenhouse, just typically CEA or indoor farming. You know, they, it's good because they have the connections in the markets where they can cultivate those customer relationships and really understand what that customer wants to achieve. As you alluded to before, I'd love to address the question is where does vertical farming apply? Where does it not apply? That's a, yeah. that needs to be spoken about. So they do a great job of triaging and applying customers where they need to be sending customers where they need to be sent. But yeah, the cultivated relationship is great for us so far. Very good. So as we wrap up, I like to leave a little space at the end of these conversations. Given the audience, you've got a lot of your peers listening to the show now, friends and leaders in the space. What message do you have for folks in this industry at this current date and time that we're at? Integrate more than you invent. Focus on scale production. Focus on the unsexy stuff, I reckon. The best thing any vertical farming business can do for this industry and for the earth is to demonstrate large-scale production, period. When I see Bowery's next facility up and running and Plenty's next facility up and running, when I see IGS being proliferated throughout the world, I love this, dude. I love it. And part of it is this thick competitive thing that I think I probably have, but also it is just that humble gratitude for the hard work that all these other businesses are doing to scale this technology. It's a combination of those two things. So that would probably be my advice. Be patient. It's easy to say to the businesses. That's hard to say to the investors. But uh, yeah, I think that would probably be my advice, Harry. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to come on and share your story. It's really inspiring to see your journey. And definitely, I appreciate you bringing the energy to the conversation as well, because that's always fun. Makes it more enjoyable for the listener as well. Any parting words, any thoughts about where we're headed and what has you most excited? I always try and end these somewhat philosophically, probably to the chagrin of the uh, podcast hosts. But too much time, in my opinion, is spent on the net. And this is global. You know, There was a recent study that came out on what traits were most shared amongst the most successful people. The number one trait or the number one sort of uh, what you say is mental habit is optimism. 
I think optimism, exaggerated optimism, it is that which drives me. I am densely, I am disproportionately optimistic about the future. I don't share this belief that the world is going to hell in a handbasket in the next 12 months or 12 years. I have a, an incredible faith in humanity's ability to weather the storm. And I think we should invest more of our time thinking about how to weather the storm as opposed to talking about the freaking storm. And that goes beyond just figurative, if I may. So yeah, that's, I suppose those would be my parting words and invest your time in things that won't appear on Instagram. Very well said. Nice uh, way to put a ribbon on this conversation. <laughs> so thanks again. Uh, 1.1.com for folks to get connected with the company. Anywhere else you want to send folks to learn more about you or the company? Sure. I mean, LinkedIn, uh, www.willow.farm. Willow with no W at the end ends in an O. Those are the places where you can learn most about us. And I'd, uh, I'd encourage any listeners who are interested in introducing high quality produce into their communities, reach out. We'd love to partner with you. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Samuel for coming on the show and sharing his incredibly inspiring story. Love when guests bring the energy, bring the enthusiasm, and Samuel definitely did not disappoint. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Special thanks to our Season 8 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co and see if a podcast is just what your brand or business needs now. As a reminder, if you enjoyed this show or past episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I promise to read those out on a future episode. And how excited would you be if you heard yourself on this show? Totally. Tune in next week for my conversation with another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. Next week, we've got something special planned. We're going to be dropping two episodes in advance of Indoor Ag Tech NYC. We've got conversations coming up with Kiana Mickey, the director of the Urban Ag Movement in New York City. A great conversation and a return engagement from Nona Yehia of Vertical Harvest Farms amazing inspiring that's the the two words that come to mind when i think about nona and the work that they're doing and the new projects they've got coming up so stay tuned for those both of those dropping next week until we meet again here's to your health thanks for listening to read the full show notes for this episode which includes any links mentioned in the episode as well as a full show transcription visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com there, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.